We're in the book of Ephesians, chapter 6, starting in verse 10 this morning. Would you turn there with me? We're going to read together to start out. Ephesians chapter 6, starting in verse 10. And would you stand with me as we read from God's Word? Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. It's been six months since we began our study in Ephesians. This is the 26th message in Ephesians. And it all began as we began to look at God's purpose before the foundation of the world to create for himself a people that have been rescued and then bound together through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. This would be a people that transcended race, transcends language, class, gender, political parties, and all those other earthly distinctions out there that separate us. The dividing walls of hostility would be torn down as this new society, this new family, this new nation, a dwelling place for God himself would rise. There is now one body and one spirit. Just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Because of God's great mercy and grace, and for his own glory, people who were once hopelessly lost in darkness, they've been scooped up and hurled into this brilliant light. And as they're brought into this light, they're called to walk as children of light. And that means walking differently. It means living differently. It's living in a Christ-like way. No longer are they to live for themselves, fighting tooth and nail to grab up everything that they can for themselves. Instead, they're to be They're to be others-oriented, gladly looking to just give of themselves for the good of others. Rather than swinging back, they, they absorb the blows. Rather than harboring resentment, they now, they're seeking, they're actively seeking, tenaciously seeking to give grace. Rather than rise against authority, they willingly submit to those that are over them because they know that in doing so, they're submitting to their ultimate authority and they're giving him glory. What a beautiful picture. What an ideal picture of this new life that you and I have in Christ. But we're not finished. We have verse 10. And Paul says, finally, Now, when we read the word finally, our tendency would probably be to think that we've we've come to the end. We've come to that final point, the parting words. And in a sense, we have. 
We're going to finish up our, our study in Ephesians at the end of this month. But if that's all that we get from the word finally, we're actually kind of missing out. Because if you look at the Greek and you understand what the meaning of that word really conveys, it has a lot more to do with what we can expect from here on out. You see, Paul's been laying out, he laid out before the foundation of the world, he laid out our beginning, and now he laid out, here's the way you need to live, and then he says, finally, as if to say, from here on out, some translations use the word, henceforward. This is what you can expect going forward. We're living in a very unique time. A very unique time. Christ has come. He defeated sin, defeated the grave. He's claimed for himself a people. He showered grace upon them. He's given them every single thing that they need to glorify him and to survive. And even now, he's expanding that kingdom. But this isn't the end. This is not the final period of time. We're looking forward to another time, aren't we? We're looking forward to a time that begins when Christ comes again. 1 Thessalonians 4.16, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first, it says, Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. And Paul says, therefore, encourage one another with these words. I'm encouraged. What a spectacular day that will be. It's going to be absolutely extraordinary, isn't it? The day that we meet our Savior face to face. And you know, even now, as of this Thursday, our sister Jean Bergman is seeing the Lord face to face. I'm jealous. Free of pain, free of suffering, free of the sin that she was all too aware of in herself even after years and years of walking with the Lord and growing and maturing in Christ, it was still there. She still recognized it. And she's free of all that. It's amazing. We're not there yet. Here's where we're at. Paul says, finally. Or he says, henceforward. Or from here on out. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. You know, I would have loved it if Paul would have just stopped at verse 10. If he would have, if he would have showed us how God from the beginning of time, he had this plan, he rescued us, he saved us, now he's equipped us, and now he shows us how to live this Christian life, how to walk as children of light. And then he just said, okay, enjoy. Just, 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 just go enjoy because this is incredible what Christ has done for you. Just go live the way that freed slaves are supposed to live. Enjoy this new life. 
Go do this children of light thing. Enjoy life to the full. God has given you everything you need. This is life the way he always intended it to be lived. Kind of like how I think that some people imagine winning the lottery is going to be. It's just bliss. You, you get all that money and all of a sudden, all your troubles, all your worries, everything is in the past now. And now you get to live the rest of your days in this glorious, wealthy state. It's just going to be incredible. Can't wait. But we know that's not how it is. Not from personal experience, right? But we know from the stories that we've heard that money doesn't remove all of life's problems. 1.6 billion is not nearly enough to bring happiness and eliminate trouble. And similarly, trusting in Jesus, it doesn't take away all of life's problems. Jesus made that clear in John 16. In this world, you will have tribulation. But unlike winning the lottery, unlike winning the lottery, Christians have hope that one day, actually, there will come a day, there will come a day when that trouble's going to be over. It's going to be gone. And we are going to live in that state of bliss. It's going to be incredible. Revelation 21, 3 through 4 tells us there's going to come a day when the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. But where you and I are living right now, we're in those former things. We're not there yet. And so Paul doesn't close with Ephesians 10 just saying, live long and prosper no, instead he tells us from here on out, you and I are living in a war zone. We are in a war zone. You're no longer slaves, but guess what? You are now targets. Your old master doesn't like you very much. He's got those crosshairs of his sniper rifle trained right on you. How's that for unsettling? And as targets, you and I need to be prepared for battle. He talks of being strong. He talks of putting on armor. He talks of standing. And he talks of wrestling. Clearly, there's a struggle that we're now involved in. There's a fight that we're involved in. And our goal this morning isn't to unpack all of the details of how we need to equip ourselves for that battle. We're going to focus on that next week. And we'll parse all of that out. But instead, this morning, I just want us to alert ourselves, to sound the alarm once again, and remind each other that we are involved in a struggle. And I want us to remind ourselves of who our struggle is with. It goes without saying that if you're going to go to war, you need to know your enemy. If I came to you and said that somebody hates your guts, what's the first thing that you're going to ask? Who, who is it? Who, who hates my guts? Who said that? Right? 
And you want to know because based on who it is, well, that's going to that's gonna determine how you take that. And it's going to determine how you, you think about what your response should be. And it's going to determine whether or not you brace yourself for more blows that you can expect to come or whether or not this is just one of those things. It's just someone said it and they're just loose with their language and it's no big deal at all. And it also helps you prepare. How am I going to confront this? Or is there a response that needs to happen inside of me? Do I, do I take this seriously? You've heard it said, consider the source, right? That's because where the attack comes from, it makes all the difference. And if a two-year-old tells me that I'm a dummy, that's one thing. That, that does happen, by the way. But if a 55-year-old graduate professor comes and says that same thing, well, I'm going to have to think about it a little bit. I'm going to have to evaluate it. Am I really a dummy? Maybe he's right. It's important to know your enemies. Now, in our lives, we identify all sorts of enemies, don't we? There are times when we're growing up and those, uh, those people over us, our parents, become our enemies, or at least we think they are. Or maybe at school, we've identified some enemies. Maybe teachers, maybe it's homework, maybe it's a bully. As we get older, maybe it's our job, maybe it's our boss, maybe it's our coworkers. Tragically, when some hear the word enemy, they think of, of family. Some think of children. Some think of their spouse. Or maybe it's not even a person. Maybe it's, maybe it's finances. Maybe it's the economy. Maybe it's the stock market. Maybe it's our fixed income. Maybe it's the system or the man. Later in our lives, it might become our health. It might even be time. But Paul doesn't mention any of that here. None of that here. He says that our real struggle, the real enemy that we now face, it's, it's spiritual forces. We do not wrestle, he says, against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly Places. Now, some people have tried to parse all of this out and separate all of these descriptors into different categories. We want to understand this spiritual forces that is out there. But Paul, he really doesn't give us any detail here. He just lists off as if he's just trying to say, look, your enemy is spiritual. You have all these apparent enemies around you, but the real enemy, the root enemy, that is spiritual. Not human beings, not finances, not health. It's spiritual. You know, those who lived in Ephesus would have had a very keen awareness of what Paul was talking about here. There was actually an incident that happened in Ephesus which gripped everyone with fear. And we find it recorded in Acts 19. The Lord was doing astonishing things through Paul's ministry. Amazing things were happening. So much so that people recognized something's happening with this guy and they brought handkerchiefs and they got little pieces of, of cloth or I think it says aprons and they would just try to, they, try to push their way into Paul and they just try to touch him with this piece of cloth and then they would take it and they'd run back to a loved one who was sick or maybe had demon possession or something like that and they would touch the cloth to that person and the Bible tells us 
they were healed. What is, this is incredible. This is unprecedented here. Amazing stuff was happening. Well, there were seven itinerant Jewish exorcists that were traveling through, and they heard the buzz, obviously. No one could ignore it. And they, they, they heard that Paul was doing all this in the name of Jesus. And so they thought, wow, maybe there's, there's something to this claiming the name of Jesus here, and maybe we should add it into our repertoire of exorcisms. <laughs> and so they tried it. They said to a demoniac, they said, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. And I'm sure they were already like, oh, this is going to be good. This is going to be awesome. This This is the secret phrase. But to their absolute shock, the demon replies back, Acts 19, 15, Jesus I know, Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom the evil spirit, in man in whom was the evil spirit, leaped on them, mastered all of them, and and overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. What a sight that must have been. I would have loved to have seen that. It would have been a little disturbing, but wow. It's incredible. You hear the rumblings over there. They're having a conversation with this demon. All of a sudden, they're screaming. They're running, arms flailing, and they're bleeding. And it's just, they're, they're naked. <laughs> ah! Wow. Reading on of the aftermath in verse 17. And this became known. It became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks. Fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it. It came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. What do you see happening here? You see revival breaking out here. The people of Ephesus, they were all too aware of the enslaving spiritual powers. Many of them had seen how destructive this had been, and in response, they they turn from their pagan ways, many of them, and they take their, their magic books and probably their amulets and all those other things that we've talked about in the book of Ephesians, and they brought all this stuff together, and they set it on fire. And I'm, I'm sure that for some of them, maybe they thought about it before. I, I, I should get rid of this book, but this book cost me so much money. This is a classic. I can't get it. But at this point, they just said, I'm done with it. I'm through with it. It doesn't matter how much money I paid. It doesn't matter how much all these books are worth. We've got to get rid of this. And incidentally, that's how you know when you're in a revival. This is how you know. It's when you see people enthusiastically turning from their sin, turning from pornography, throwing out those magazines, canceling those cable subscriptions, installing filters on their computers, setting restrictions on their cell phones, and setting up relationships with others, other believers who can hold them accountable. 
You see people who are pouring out that alcohol that once had control of them or those drugs. You see them getting rid of the tarot cards, the filthy movies, the filthy music. You see them stopping short of saying things that they used to say or sending out those filthy emails. You see them moving out of their boyfriend's house or their girlfriend's apartment. You see them going to people that they have offended and they confess their sin and they ask forgiveness. You can recognize a revival when you see people turn from their sin and tune in to God's word. That's how you know. That's what happened in Ephesus. The people knew exactly what Paul was talking about, exactly what he was talking about when he starts listing off these spiritual forces. But you know what? In our day, it takes a little more effort for us. Because in our day, that reality, that spiritual, demonic reality, I think it's not quite as clear. I think when people think of of the demonic realm, they're thinking of some type of imagination of, of Hollywood movie creators. They're thinking, this is what people who were less informed, less intelligent generations ago, they bought into this kind of stuff back when they were all superstitious but we can't really take that seriously. We're, we're too educated. We're too intellectual. We're too savvy these days. We don't believe in, we can't take any of that really seriously. You know, it's fun to kind of make believe on Halloween, but there's no real substance to any of it. But for us who say that this is the word of God, we've got to take it seriously. As much as I don't like to, as uncomfortable as talking of these things makes me feel, I've got to take it seriously. Because all Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable. Paul makes it very clear. You have an enemy, and it may not be what you think. In fact, this enemy is not even seen. Yet it's very, very real. How does he describe this enemy? You look at verse 12. We can conclude at least three different things. One, this enemy is powerful. He calls them authorities. He calls them cosmic powers. Now, certain people look at this and they say, well, these are ranks of demons. We don't really have clarity on that. But we do know that clearly these descriptors describe power. They describe authority. There's a rule that they have, or at least a rule that they're trying desperately not to lose. Remember when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness, the devil devil came to him, claimed to be able to give Jesus all the kingdoms of the world. Jesus even refers to Satan as the ruler of, of this world in John 12, 31. Now here's the thing. We know on the cross that Christ defeated, decisively defeated the principalities and powers. But Paul indicates to us here that the period that we are in right now, there continue to be certain demonic forces that are warring against us. It's as if the final blow has been dealt, but there are still these soldiers unwilling to relent, still fighting desperately, not willing to admit defeat. Victory has been won, but there's skirmishes out there. They're powerful. They're not only powerful, they're evil. You know, power in and of itself is not a bad thing. God is powerful. In fact, the Bible makes it very clear. God is 
all-powerful, but that's not a bad thing. That's actually a wonderfully good thing. We can trust him wholeheartedly, in part because we know he has the muscle that he needs to come through on all of his good promises to us. But these powers Paul's talking about, they're evil, he says. They're the cosmic powers over this present darkness. They're the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. They hate truth and light. They live to destroy. They use all manner of despicable tactics to accomplish their goals. They abide by no rules of war. Geneva Convention? What's that? They're malicious. They're ruthless. They're deceitful. They'll promise the world and then brutally mutilate anyone who buys in. They're powerful, they're evil. Third, they're cunning. They're so cunning. Verse 11, Paul tells us, stand against the schemes of the devil. That word schemes, it can be translated methods. This is not a stupid, thoughtless enemy. I remember a youth pastor years ago that I knew, he's like, the the devil, you know, don't be scared of the devil. He's just like this big clown. And just, you know, every time you get scared of the devil, just, just, just run up in your mind and you just go squish his little red nose. Just go squish the nose. He's just a silly. He has no power. No, he's cunning. He's very cunning. Those of you who've played video games in the past, you, you know what it might look like to have a stupid enemy. And back, back before the days of all this AI stuff, this artificial intelligence that's pre-programmed into those enemies in those video games, there were these little, like, uh, turtles running around, and little, little, little mushrooms. And all these things did was they just went back and forth, or they bounced. They did all these silly things. They didn't even know that you were there. And the only way that you were ever going to get hurt by them was that if you were sloppy and bumped into them. And then you get really small, and then when you're really small, if you get bumped again, then it's over. So that's not the enemy that Paul is describing here. This enemy has tactics. This enemy evaluates your weaknesses. He's, he's looking for those soft spots. He's looking for those places of vulnerability. And then he strikes at the opportune moment when your guard is down. We're told that he transforms himself as an angel of light. Oh, you look so good, so desirable, so trustworthy. There are also times that he, he attacks like a roaring lion, but it seems like nine times out of ten, he's more like that sneaky, slithering serpent that just finds his way into your life when you least expect him. So how does this powerful, evil, cunning enemy attack? What are those areas of our lives that he looks for? Well, he attacks in the area of doubt, doesn't he? You remember Eve in the garden? You remember what that serpent said to her? He said, did God really say? He wants us to think that we are standing on some type of shaky ground. It's brittle. It's going to fall apart underneath our feet. This stuff that you believe in, this word that you place your trust in, this is not really reliable. Did God really say? Is he really good? Is he really all-powerful? Is he going to come through on his promises to you? 
Oh, you said you placed your trust in him. Oh, you have faith in him. Was you near your last day? Are you really confident? Are you really confident that you're going to see him face to face? He tries to place doubt inside of us. He wants us to doubt ourselves. He wants us to look around and doubt each other. We do that all the time. We hear something said out here in the courtyard, maybe over the phone, maybe it's up on social media, and we start thinking, I don't know about that guy. I thought I could trust him, but now I'm not so sure. And we're thinking, assuming that evil is stirring in their hearts. Sometimes it is. He wants us to doubt our leaders. Doubt is an area of attack that we got to be watching for. He also attacks us in the area of purity. <laughs> There's nothing that he would like more than to sully the reputation of Christ's gleaming bride and make us ineffective in the things that Christ wants us to do, ineffective in representing Jesus here on earth. He wants to attack our purity. He wages war on our intellect. And we, we've seen how some of the brightest, most brilliant Learned minds have had blinders placed over their eyes. We know that he blinds the minds of unbelievers. We see that in Romans 1. We see that in 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. But he actually also tries to trip up believers in this area as well. As wise as we think ourselves to be. You know, some of us have been believers for a long, long time. Some of us have gone through programs like uh, Awana or some other Bible memorization program or we've been in BSF or we've been in all sorts of other Bible studies or we've read our Bibles each and every day of our lives and in our minds, we are very, very knowledgeable and there's nothing wrong with that. There's something very good about that and yet Satan wants to get in there. He wants to tweak. He wants to say, put confidence in that. Look around at all the other people out there. They're not as learned as you. They can't quote scripture like you. And he's pulling, tugging on our pride, isn't he? Trying to divide the body of Christ. He attacks our intellect. He also attacks us in the area of our mor morality. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 2.22, he says, flee youthful passions. Pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord from pure heart, have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to knowledge of the truth and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will, 2 Timothy 2.22. And then there's one of his, I think, latest and greatest ways of attack. Our awareness of his reality. We mentioned that several months ago. One of his greatest achievements is in convincing the world that he doesn't exist. What a dangerous thing that would be for those he's bent on destroying. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones in his book called Warfare, he wrote, I am certain that one of the main causes of the ill state of the church today is the fact that the devil is being forgotten. All is attributed to us. We have all become so psychological in our attitude and thinking. We're ignorant of this great objective fact 
the being, the existence of the devil, the adversary, the accuser, and his fiery darts. We can't take these words of Paul's for granted here. We can't just brush over them and move on to other things. The enemy is real. The battle is real. The strategic attacks are very real. And you and I, as children of light, for the time being, we live in a war zone. We live in a war zone. And you might be thinking, that's just great. Isn't that my luck? Isn't that the way life goes for me? God saved me so that I could be caught up in this, in the middle of this cosmic battle that's going on here. Oh, I thought it was such a great thing. And now look at me. Why did he have to leave me in this fight? Why doesn't God just pull his troops out? He rescued them out of darkness. Just set them on some rock over here and let them watch the battle from the sidelines. Jesus prayed in John 17, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. You see, Jesus doesn't want his people to fall into sin. He doesn't want to see us give in and surrender. No, he doesn't want that at all. But he does want us to be present in this sinful world. There's a reason we're here. We're the boots on the ground. He's got a purpose for us. He's, we're privileged to fight for the king. We are privileged to carry the torch and light the way brightly on behalf of the king. And to take part in the glorious victory that he has already secured. You know, I think too many times Christians, having lost sight of the war, forget that God has strategically placed us here in our communities, intentionally gifted us so that we might be forces of good and light in a dark world. We're not here to retreat. We're not here to lock our doors and pull down the shades until he returns. Like we talked about last month, we're to shine bright the light of Christ. And so we need Christian teachers out there in those public schools. And so we need Christians in Hollywood working on those films. And we need Christians who are journalists that are writing articles, truth, for the newspapers. We need to be out there in politics representing Christ. We need to be the police officers, the firefighters, the doctors, the nurses, the landlords, the photographers, the plumbers, the fashion designers, and absolutely we need Christians to be those used car salesmen and women. Gotta have them. Jesus wants us to be out there representing him in the world. We're to be on our guard, ready to stand our ground, not falling prey to the evil, but we need to be out there. Gotta be out there. Now, I said earlier, we're not gonna unpack all of the weapons of warfare here, but it's important for us to realize God hasn't left his troops defenseless without the means of resistance. He's equipped them with everything that they need to soldier on. Paul tells us, finally, be strong in the Lord, in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the evil schemes of the devil. For now, let me just point out that the source of our strength and our ability to stand and resist where that's found, we all know. It's not found in ourselves. It's found in the Lord. 
Be strong in the Lord, in the strength of his might. We may be weakened in of ourselves, but we got to remember in our weakness, he is strong. Also, we got to notice that when Paul speaks about the armor, whose armor is it? Well, it's God's armor. It comes from him. It's not born from human invention, human design, human creativity. And it's this Lord's strength and might and armor that allows us to do what Paul calls us to do, and that is stand. Paul calls us to stand, but our ability to stand, that is directly connected to our dependence upon our God. The enemy is powerful, he's evil, he's cunning, but God is infinitely more powerful. We know something of that powerful power because we have read about it in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is power. And God's power was also put on display when you and I were brought from death to life. What incredible power. Maybe you look back on your life before Christ and you go, there is no way that I should have trusted in Jesus. The reality is there's no way that any of us in and of ourselves should have trusted in Jesus. It's all the power of God. And it's by that same power, that awe-inspiring power that we are able to stand. You and I live in a war zone. Whenever believers start to argue with one another, remember, we're at war. When you've been looking forward to that new television series coming out, and then it comes out and you realize, I can't watch this. Look at all this content that's in here. Remember, we're at war. When you watch the news and read of the murders and the crimes that took place last night, right here down the street in Orange County, remember, you're at war. When you find yourselves or others, you hear of people falling to pornography. Remember, we're at war. When you see families divided and ripped apart because of their sin, remember, we are at war. When you consider the holocaust of unborn babies that is defended under the name of women's health, remember, we are at war. And when you see churches struggling financially, remember, we are at war. When you see children our children questioning their sexuality. Remember, we are at war. When you find yourself faced with all sorts of different temptations, and you're struggling with doubt, you're tempted with impure thoughts, you feel like lashing out because a fellow believer has hurt you, or you're tired of submitting to your authorities, you're fed up with your spouse, you're overwhelmed with discouragement. When prayer, worship, and spending time in God's word feels like a struggle, remember, you are are at war. And remember, we're here for the duration. Until our tour of duty comes to an end, or the Lord returns. Until that time, know your enemy. Know his tactics. Fix your eyes on Jesus. And stand. It's been six months since I've been here at Bethany. I've heard wonderful stories of victories, things that have been done through you, through this property here, through different people who have been here on this campus, wonderful things that have been done in the name of Jesus Christ. And I've seen fantastic things happen, even in the last six months. And yet along with that, it's become increasingly clear to me that this is a church 
at war. There's an enemy that does not like what we are doing. There's a battle that rages on. There's opposition on multiple fronts. But we know who has the victory. So we continually remind ourselves that the victory that Christ has won, we claim him as our own, we look to his word, we walk by faith, and then dropping to our knees in prayer and reliance on him. That's how we stand.